0: Okay, so before we get started talking about this week's passage, I always figure a little bit of review is good um, because it helps us to remember where we have been, to move forward into where we are now. So last week we talked about the change that we believers make when we come to faith. Um, By grace, through faith, God has brought us from death to life, and Paul reminds us that we were once dead in Christ, but now we are alive. No, we were not dead in Christ. Scratch that. We were once dead before Christ, but now we are are alive in Christ. And so that's the great metaphor that he sets up in that passage. And then in today's passage, he goes back again to contrast the before and after again, what we once were as opposed to what we are now. And the metaphor that he uses um, is not really a metaphor so much as a truth like between ethnic differences and and the racial differences between Jews and Gentiles and what it meant to be a Jew and what it meant to be a Gentile and how the Gentiles have now been brought into that family. And so to understand this whole passage, which I'm going to read and then we will go into the background, um, you have to know your Old Testament history. You have to have that background, because if you don't, then it does kind of make you scratch your head a little bit about what he's talking about. So, (coughs) excuse me, tonight we'll talk about some of that history to kind of shed light on what the passage is about. So I'm going to read, starting in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, and I'm going to read through the end of that chapter, and then we'll do chapter 3 in a little while. So he starts off talking about this difference between the circumcised and the uncircumcised and Gentiles and Jews and all that kind of stuff. And what he's really drawing on is this big division between the two that started way back in the beginning, like way back in Genesis, way back at the beginning of the Bible. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and Adam and Eve, and they sinned. And that was the fall which brought sin into the world, and you know, we're still living out the consequences of all that fun times. So the first 11 chapters of Genesis are pretty much doom and gloom, because after Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, another not good story, then you have like Noah and the flood, not good story. So there's all of this kind of of dark stuff happening in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, with glimmers of hope. It's not all completely dark. You know, there is the rainbow at the end of the flood. And God does preserve some people, but it's not good. But then in Genesis 12, there's like this turning point. And he calls Abraham. He makes a promise to Abraham. I've got all these tabs in my Bible, y'all. I, it got a little ridiculous, so I stopped doing it after a while. But the first one, in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 4, God makes a promise to Abraham, who was Abram at the time. And he says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, so God makes this promise to Abram. And Abram becomes the first patriarch of Israel. He is the one from whom the whole entire country nation proceeds he is the family like the root of the family tree or the i he is the guy from which the whole family flows down okay so this you know the thing about families is that you have to be born into it right unless you marry into it micah is obsessed obsessed with the royal family Like she, uh, I do not want to break this dream of hers, but I feel I I broke her Olympic dreams earlier. (laughs) But she wants to be a princess. Like she is convinced that one day she can go to England and be a princess. She she just knows it can happen. She knows that I can introduce her to, (laughs) to the royal family, and they can get married, and she can be a princess. Like she understands that that family is special. And that she can only be a princess if she's in that family. She gets it. They're 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 special. But she doesn't get that not just anybody can be a part of the family. She's not getting the exclusivity of it. She's like, you just introduce me, Mommy, and I can marry him, and we'll be good. I'm like, well, there is a prince, but he's a little bit younger than you. you know, you're, you're a little bit older. And she's like, well, it's okay, Mommy. You can just introduce me, and I'll be fine. I'll marry him, and I'll be a princess. I'm like, mm-hmm, yep, that's exactly how it works. Okay, so... Anyway, all that to say, families are exclusive by nature because in order, that's just the way it works. You got to get married and have kids. So you can't just be a member of somebody else's family just because you decide you want to be. That's not how it works. And so, that's how the nation of Israel starts as this family because Abram had Isaac, and Isaac had who? For his he had two sons, Jacob and Esau, Jacob and Esau but God didn't like Esau so much. Jacob, he liked. Jacob had 12 sons who became the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel, okay? And so from them, the whole family comes. Now, the thing about the way that God um, interacted with his people in those days was through covenants and promises. So this, the call of Abraham in chapter 12, verse 1, is a promise. God says, Go from your father's house. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That is the promise that um, Abram's people will be God's people. And then as you go throughout Genesis, the promise becomes more specific and exclusive. Because by the time you get to chapter 17, which was in your homework, um, where it talks about circumcision and all of that, Circumcision is then the mark of the promise. So only those who are circumcised um, get the promise. And so it becomes a little bit more specific as it goes on. Now, Jacob had the 12 sons. Who, who was his son that got sent to Egypt? Joseph. And it's kind of like Genesis ends with Joseph's story. And that's kind of like how the people of Israel get to Egypt in the first place. Because Joseph is sold into slavery There's a famine. His whole family comes to get the food. Because Joseph rose out of slavery, he's now head of Pharaoh's household. So they all come to Egypt to get the food, and then they end up as slaves. Fun times. (laughs) Okay, so through Moses, God leads his people, because they are his people, because of the promises that he has made to Abram, he leads them out of slavery. And they enter into the second big covenant of the Bible, with him at Mount Sinai, the Mosaic Covenant. It's the um, the Ten Commandments, basically. And this covenant here is much more specific than the one that Abraham got because it goes from being this open-ended promise, I will bless those who bless you, to I will be your God, you will be my people. If you keep these commandments, I will bless you. If you do not keep these commandments, I will curse you. And so with every step along the way, it becomes more specific. And we see here that God is faithful no matter what they do. Like He keeps his word, whether they keep theirs or not, because he's covered. If they keep their word, then he'll bless them. If they don't keep their word, then he'll curse them. And it's all kind of part of the original agreement that they make. And so um, there's one more covenant in the Old Testament that's, spoken of a lot that's the davidic covenant the covenant that god made between himself and david and that covenant states that there will always be a king from david's line on the throne of israel and we know that that is realized eventually in jesus christ because he came from david's line okay so god makes all of these promises he reveals himself to us in the old testament through the covenants And because circumcision is a mark of the covenant, um, it became, which this has always been weird to me, like, how do you know someone's circumcised? I mean, how can that be a mark of the covenant? It's not like you're walking around showing everybody that. I mean, I don't know. But anyway, it's the mark of the covenant. And it became like um, these terms that he's talking about in Ephesians chapter 1, I mean 2, sorry, and where we are today. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh um, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Those are not polite terms, literally translated. It's Foreskins, and like it's never a good idea to walk around calling somebody by male genitalia. You know, like it is not a good idea to call people by those names. What would happen if you did that? Just imagine. So this is a very impolite section of the Bible. Just know that what he is saying is not good. But there were slurs that people would throw at each other to put to divide the groups, and so they were very derogatory terms, very divisive terms. And what he's saying here, um, he says, remember that you Gentiles in the flesh. And what he's pointing out is that this division is a false division. But those who call themselves the circumcision, they call themselves the circumcision. And what he, Paul is referring to is another passage in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 13. And also verse 16, where... The Bible says that circumcision is not a matter necessarily, a physical matter, but it's a matter of the heart. It says in verse 16 of chapter 10, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn for the Lord, your God is God of gods and Lord of Lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. And what Paul says in other places in Romans, in his letter to the Romans In chapter 2, he says that a Jew is not someone who is necessarily just part of the ethnic group, okay? A Jew is someone inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, okay? So, when he's talking about these two groups in verse 11, he's talking about, he says, What is called the circumcision, it's the group that are Jews by ethnicity, but not necessarily of the heart. And they are casting stones at anyone who is not of their ethnic descent. Okay. And what Paul is saying is that membership in the people, God's people, are those who are his people inwardly not outwardly, those who have circumcised hearts. It's so complicated. To, I feel like I'm saying the same things over and over again, which is maybe why Paul says the same things over and over again in this passage. Um, but he'll also... Gentiles in the flesh, Was that what he meant by Gentiles in the flesh? Yes. Um, he says those who, who, like your flesh, you you were uncircumcised people, so you were Gentiles. Yeah. And those people who are by ethnicity Jews are casting stones at you because you're just, you weren't born in the family. Sorry. Sucks for you. You're out. Okay. (laughs) Yes, Can't be a princess. That's right. I haven't broken that to her yet, by the way. Just like, mommy, I don't know. I don't know Prince William, so I don't really think I can make that introduction happen. Okay. So are we good? Are we on the same page so far? Okay, so then he goes on to say, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We have to have a firm grasp of what it meant to be the people of God. Like what did it mean for God to call a people out for himself? What did it mean for Israel to be the chosen people of God? How did they view themselves and their identity? And then how would it look for an outsider? Okay. So if y'all will turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to Deuteronomy chapter 7. And I'm going to start reading in verse 6. This is the self-identity passage Israel. Okay. You are a people holy to the Lord, your God. The Lord, your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It wasn't because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, but you were the fewest of all peoples. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay to him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And then he goes on and talks more specifically about the benefits of being part of the family. And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you. Bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock and the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness. And none of the evil diseases of Egypt which you knew will be he inflict on you. But he will lay on those who hate you. Okay. And so those are just a few of the benefits of being part of the people of God. As as God's people, you are a recipient of all the blessings of God. He will take care of your enemies for you. You won't be sick. You won't ever face famine, any of those things, because you are God's people, and he has his wing over you. He will protect you, and he will care for you. And so to be part of the people of God, then, was to be a beneficiary of all of those things. So when he's saying you are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, you are strangers to the covenants of promise, it means that you had no hope of partaking in these blessings because you were did not make the covenant with God. The covenant was with the people of Israel, not with you. You never had a chance. But then he goes on and changes all of that. In verse 13 he says, But now in Christ Jesus you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so those who were far away who had no chance of ever making it into the family, have been brought into the family. And Amber, I swear, this whole time, I was hoping you were going to be here. The whole time I was preparing for this, I was thinking about adoption and your children. For those of you who don't know, Amber and Kyle have adopted two children from China. And to think about, um, I just think it's a beautiful illustration of the gospel played out, because before they were adopted, they didn't have much hope for a good future. Um, They were apart from the family of God and the culture that they were in. And just like we were once that way, but as you went and got them and brought them near, drew them in, you did for them what they couldn't do for themselves. And remove them from that. And, and because of that, because they are now members of your family, they, are, they have the full benefits thereof. Um, they have a hope for a good future. They have a home that's full of love and kindness. They have siblings who love them. You know, And most importantly, they have the chance now to learn about Jesus. Because they have brought into this family... And that is exactly what God has done for us. He has taken us who were strangers and who were aliens and who had no part in his family and he has drawn us in. He has gone and retrieved us and brought us into his family. He has done for us what we could not do for ourselves and what we needed most of all. And how does it say that he does this? What what accomplishes it? This is the blood of Christ. And it is through his death and through his resurrection that we are able to draw near. It says in verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And what he's saying here is that through Christ, God has taken what used to be two separate things and brought them together in one. So that there is therefore now neither Jew nor Gentile, but both are the same because they have been united in one body. Um, one of the commentaries I read said that the early Christians, the early church, actually used to refer to themselves as the third way because there were the Jews and there were the Gentiles and then there were those who were former Jews and former Gentiles who were now one. And so they had been brought together into one new body, that is the church. And they are no longer separated. And this was a big deal. I think it, it might be hard for us to understand, but... It is a really, really big deal for the early church because those commandments that God gave them on Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, and then like all the laws that fill up the whole of the, old, the first five books of the Old Testament, there were a whole lot of them that had to do with interacting with Gentiles, a whole lot of them. The, God's law forbade the Jews from intermarrying, from like sitting down and having a meal with a Gentile. They were not to have anything to do with those who were, quote, unclean. And so when you get to the early church and you get to um, these issues that they're facing where Jesus has proclaimed this gospel and he has said that it is not just for the Jews, but for Gentiles too, then they had to figure out a way to be together because they had always been separate, strictly separate on purpose because that was the way that God's law decreed it. And so you get to this and you think, or I think, maybe I'm the only one. What is God like this? He just wishy-washy. What's he doing? Changing his mind here? Like, why would he want them separate then and together? And, like, what is the deal with that? Um, but I think the beautiful thing that you see through it is that God's purpose always from the very beginning has been to reconcile all of humanity to himself. Now the Israel was always meant to be a sign of God's love and God's faithfulness and his mercy to the nations around them. They, if you remember in God's call of Abram, he said, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you so that you may be a blessing. So he, Abram and his family were supposed to be bearers of God's blessings to the people. Okay? And the law was given to kind of help them stay pure. Because the surrounding cultures were not pretty cultures at all. It's like Rebecca was talking about earlier. I mean, we're talking about child sacrifice. and I mean, it was bad stuff. And so they were not to be influenced by that. And they were kept separate, so much so that if you remember the rest of your Old Testament history, they didn't do a very good job of keeping themselves separate. They were influenced. They began worshiping those other idols. And as a result, God punished them, and they went into exile. They were taken over by other countries, by Assyria <coughs> first and then by Babylon the temple was ransacked and destroyed. The people were kind of scattered. Um, and so by the time you get to Jesus' day, there's been kind of a revival. You remember Nehemiah rebuilding the temple and they're reading the law to the law that was lost. Oh, look, we've been doing all these things we weren't supposed to do. And so in that day, there was kind of a revival and a recommitment to the law so that when you get to Jesus' time, 400 years later, Um, you have people like the Pharisees who are sticklers for the law. Like they not only have the law, but they have what's called like a hedge around the law. So that like the law is in this little bitty fenced in area, but we're going to back the fence up this far. So you never even get close to crossing this line. So they had laws on top of the laws to prevent you from ever getting close to God's original law to break it. Does that make sense? And so they were really, really focused on the law and on keeping them separate. And you can imagine that in that culture, when Jesus comes preaching to the Gentiles and Paul comes and says that we are both one, how that would go over. Um, It was not an easy thing for the early church to face. It was something that they really had to deal with. Um, And in Acts Chapter 15, which the book of Acts is the whole, it's the account of the early church and how it got its start. It really all, these tensions, they all came to a head because Peter, I mean, remember Jesus' friend Peter who denied Jesus, but he turns out, he, he, he repents, he turns out to be okay. Um, he preaches these sermons, he's bringing thousands to Christ, he's doing just like Paul, he's going on trips and he's ministering to people. But Peter gets this vision. And it says in it, um, there's all this food and like a sheep being lowered. It's really weird, bizarre kind of stuff if you had a vision like that. But anyway, there's a sheep being lowered. It's full of food. And there's this voice saying, Peter, go and eat. Peter's like, no, I will not eat unclean food. And in the vision, he hears, do not call anything unclean, which I have declared clean. And then Peter takes that to mean that he is supposed to go to the Gentiles and preach to them too. And so he does. So you've got Peter, one of the big members of, like, top dogs in the early church, saying, this is for the Gentiles, too. They are, this, this message is not just for the Jews. It is for the Gentiles, too. And then you have Paul, the other top dog in the church, saying the same thing, that this message is for the Gentiles. And it all comes to a head because Jesus was a Jew. Peter was a Jew. Paul was a Jew. All of the early disciples were Jews. And all they know is that circumcision is required if you're going to be a Jew. And so there's all these Gentiles coming to faith, and the question is, do they have to be circumcised? Like, do we have to circumcise all these grown adult men because they now believe in Jesus Christ? And so what happened is they had a big church council in Acts chapter 15, to discuss these issues about what is required of these Gentile believers. What parts of the law are they required to keep? Which parts still stand now that Jesus has come and which ones don't? And they decide that circumcision is one of those not important matters. Because, in Deuteronomy, that verse we read earlier, circumcision is a matter of the heart, not just the flesh. And so... There's very real divisions in the church. They had to figure out how to be together, how to interact with one another. And in fact, um, which we will talk while I'm jumping ahead. But anyway, it's the reason that Paul was arrested is because of this Jewish and Gentile divide, because he had taken a group of Gentile believers to Jerusalem to deliver some money that they had collected for the church they had taken up an offering because there was, a, I think there was a famine. There was a disaster of some sort. They had taken up money, and they were delivering it to the church. And he has all these Gentile believers with them, and he was accused of taking one of those Gentile believers into the temple, which was forbidden because there was a wall, literally, that divided them in the temple. And he was accused of taking the Gentile in. He was arrested, and he's writing this letter from jail as he has been arrested and accused of this. So when he says that in Christ, in verse 14, he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The wall was an actual real thing, but Jesus has abolished that. He has torn it down in his flesh, and it says also that He abolished the law of commandments and ordinances so that we no longer have to keep every single one of those nitpicky laws in the Old Testament because Jesus came to fulfill the law. And Jesus said when he was asked about the law that all of the law hangs on two commandments. What are they? Does anyone know their Bible drill verses? (laughs) Love. Yes, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul. Love neighbor as yourself. Those two things. He says the entire law of the Old Testament can be summed up in those two. Love your neighbor and love God. Probably in reverse order. Love God, love your neighbor. Okay? And so he has abolished all that. All of that. He has broken down that wall. He has created one new man in place of the two, reconciling the two together. And he has brought peace among the groups that have always been divided. And so for us today, um, we're, this is obviously talking about a very specific Jewish and Gentile problem. But you don't have to go very far in the South to see that we are very racially divided on churches, in churches. Um, and so I think that this message still applies today. Um, that there is no division in the body of Christ, no division among, along ethnic or racial lines. There should be no division. And, and when we divide ourselves, um, we present to the world a fractured view of the church. So can you just imagine <clears throat> what kind of message we would send to the world <clears throat> if we came together the way we were supposed to What kind of testimony would that give to the love of Christ, to the mercy of Christ, to the unifying power of God, if we were able to lay aside our differences and do that? So I don't know what we can do in this room about that, but I think it does start with small steps. It starts with little things and personal relationships. Um, But. The segregation thing that we have going on in, in the southern church is not, I don't think, glorifying to God. And there, if, we, if there are things that we can do to alleviate it, then we should. Um, because it would send a powerful message. I mean, just think about the way the south is perceived in <clears throat> the rest of the country. You know, we're backwards. <laughs> we've got laws on the books that nobody else does. How can they still believe that? And so they have all these preconceived notions about us and we are living them out. We're not telling them any differently. And so I just it would it would be a really powerful message <clears throat> if we could overcome that and be unified. So not only does Christ unify us, along racial and ethnic lines, but he also reconciles us to God. It says he came preaching peace to those who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Okay, so let's return to our discussion on the temple. Uh, There's not a marker in there that works. Okay, so the temple had... It's a big right? Oh, we have purple. I thought it was blue. Okay. So here's the outer courts of the temple. This would be like the Gentile court. That's where they're allowed. Don't you love my nice handwriting? Okay. And then like here's the wall that runs all the way around. And like all along the wall, there's these signs. I forgot to mention the signs um, warning them against possible death. Like, if you enter, it's on your own head, because you have been warned, you will die if you enter here, basically, saying, do not come in, but it wasn't just for Gentiles that it was warning against. it was also warning against, like, unclean Jews from entering, but basically, anyone who was unclean was forbidden from passing this gate, okay, so and then inside there, um, there was this building, this is the holy place, we're just gonna put HP, sorry, not, not. And this is the most holy place. So the Holy of Holies is in here. There's like um, an altar over here, the big basin for priests to wash up in. And then they have like other smaller basins where you could like wash your animal sacrifice. Okay. So there's all this kind of stuff. So the holy place, the priests would go in there. I'm obviously not a teacher. How do teachers do this? I don't even know. You write sideways. The priests would go in, and they would like burn incense. They would offer sacrifices in the holy place. But in the most holy place, you only went in there once a year, and only one, the most high high priest went in there. Um, And when he went in, they would tie the rope to him because he is unworthy to be in the presence of God. God's presence is supposed to dwell here in the most holy place. So he would go in to make atonement for the whole people on that one day. He was the only one who was allowed to go in. He would have to go in and pray for all the people because no one had access to God except this one priest. But when Jesus was on the cross, what happened? It, this, this wall that divided the holy place from the most holy place was torn in half. And so it's open. He literally, quite literally, opened the way for us to enter in and to have access to the Father. And so through Jesus, through his blood, we no longer need a high priest to go in and to make sacrifices for us, to plead on our behalf for God because we have access to the Father. We plead on our own behalf because the blood of Jesus covers us, okay? And so, The work of Christ on the cross reconciled us to one another. It reconciles us to God and gives us access in one spirit to the Father so that you are no longer strangers. You are no longer aliens, but you are members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So this temple isn't necessary anymore because God's spirit doesn't dwell here anymore. Where does it dwell? In, in us, in the church. And so what he's saying is that God is building a new temple. My drawing <laughs> did not, that was, for those of you who are listening or who were in here earlier, um, my, our, I had a professor that asked us to draw this once and mine looked nothing like his. So like I drew this thing with like these Greek columns and like, a portico it looked way better than this on my homework that day that i turned it in that's a cross not an ampersand okay so mom looked like something like this and i had like jesus christ here in the corner yeah that's not what he did when he drew it that's not it did anyone have one like that with columns and everything no nobody else thought of the parthenon just me that's what i think of when i think of a temple I mean, it's the picture I have in my mind. Okay. So he said that we... Here's Jesus in the corner. And it's more like he is the corner because he... When they lay the cornerstone, it's the one... It's like the first part of the foundation. Everything else is lined up according to that corner. Okay? And then you have the apostles. Who are the apostles? The disciples. And the prophets... There's some debate about who exactly Paul is referring to here. He could be talking about the Old Testament prophets. He could be talking about, like, early Christian preacher people. I don't know. I don't know who's right. But just know there's uh, teachers. So, sound teaching. We have the foundation of Jesus Christ and the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. And then he says, the rest of us are being built together fitted together into a holy dwelling place. So we are like stones that a stonemason is fitting together snugly. And what do you, do you know anything about like a dry wall, a, a dry stone wall? Okay, when it's dry, it means that there is no mortar. The stones are each fitted together so tightly that no mortar is required. And so... We are each individually created, we are each individually formed, and we are being fit together into a dwelling place for God. Okay, And this is not something that's complete. It is in process. It says you are being built together because the church is still growing. We are still adding members to the body. And so as the church grows and the temple grows and the Holy Spirit dwells within us, then we are able to shine forth God's light and glory to the nations around us. That was a lot of very technical information. We doing okay? We good? Okay. So, he moves on in chapter 3, verse 1, and he says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles... And now that you know that Paul was arrested for taking a Gentile into the temple past where he was supposed to be, it's quite literal. He is a prisoner because of the Gentiles. Um, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, and as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now what Paul is saying here is that this was always God's plan. If you go back to chapter 1 and remember what we talked about there, how God has always had a purpose how he has always had this will that has been working out through time. And we talked about how Jesus Christ was not plan B, but that he was there in the beginning with God. He was there when God formed the world. God God created the world through him. Then we know that this is God's plan. This is the outworking of God's plan from the very beginning. He had to choose a people the people of Israel were, cho- were not chosen because they were special. Okay, there wasn't anything magical or supremely great about them to set them apart from anyone else. But they were special because they were chosen. It was the choosing that made them special. But God had to choose a, per- a people group through which his son had to come. Jesus had to have a bloodline. You know, he had to come from somewhere, and so you see how small the choosing was at the very beginning was one man and his family, and then as that family grew, and it turned into a nation, and then Jesus came from that nation, and then it grew even bigger to where it's not just this man and his family anymore, but it's Everyone. And that promise was there when he made it to Abram in the very beginning. Because do you remember the tail end of the promise? I'll make you the father of many nations. This has always been God's plan. From the, it gives me chill bumps, y'all. Like it's hot in this room and I have chill bumps Because it has always been God's plan from the very beginning of time to bring the whole world, to reconcile all people to himself through his son. It started out pretty exclusive with one man and his family, but it has opened up to the entire world, and it's not a plan B. It's not some kind of haphazard, oh, we got to fix that. Those people really screwed things up when they went and sent. It's not like that. This plan has always, 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 always been in place, and so the great thing for us, since I don't think anyone in this room is of Jewish descent, are you? Anyone? I mean, I'm not a Jew. We, don't have, in, we have Indian blood, but no Jewish blood. Okay? So this is us that he is talking to. This is us. We had no chance apart from Christ to be a part of this, and we have been adopted into the family of God. And from that, he goes on, um, verse 7, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power to me. Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. There it is again, that limitlessness of God's riches. They are limitless. And through Christ, we have access to those riches. They are ours because we're part of the family now. Because we have the benefits of full-blown citizens of Israel. Those blessings that God promised are ours because we are part of the family now. And he goes on to say, he says, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Why does God do this? He does it so that His name may be made great. It is all about Him. It is all about His glory. Just as Israel was supposed to shine the light of God to the nations around them, so also are we. Our purpose, God gives us these riches. He, give, he pours His grace on us. He pours His mercy and His love, and he does He just fills us up with it so that it overflows from our lives into the world around us. He gives us his love so that we can love the world, so that we can point people to him, so that we can give glory to him, so that his name may be praised, so that his name might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And then he goes again in 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. I mean, Paul was a prisoner. He was in chains, literally. But his hope was so fully set on the gospel and on Christ and on the sovereignty of God that he could look past all of that and know that God was in charge even of his imprisonment. Even though he was in chains, he knew that God had a plan that was working out for his benefit in the long run because he was seeing past the temporal situation that he was in. And he was looking fully at the spiritual blessings that he had that he laid out for us in chapter 1. The benefits of membership in the family of God, what are they? Like, what's the big deal? Why would you want to be part of God's family? What are the benefits for us? Redemption, forgiveness of sins, a hope, a lasting eternal hope. I mean, they are endless. Those are just a few. You think of the ability to persevere through the hard times, a hope for eternity. Salvation and those benefits are not just for someday out there. It's not something that we will get someday. It's something that we already have. We are already part of God's family. We are already saved. We are already hoping in the promise that he has given us. And so for us um, who believe, this is the hope, the promise. Um, that we are clinging to, that those of us who are in Christ hold on to, is that we who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, by the redeeming power of His blood. Through Him, we have been reconciled to God. Our relationship with God that was broken because of all of our sin has been made new. It has been restored. We were dead and now we are alive. All of this through Christ's blood. And not only that, but because of his blood, we have been granted access into the family. We can we can pray directly to God. We can approach him as our father. I mean, how many of you would just On a visit to Washington, D.C., just try to go barging into the Oval Office. Anyone? Anyone want to do that? What's going to happen before you can get there? You can't even get close. But it's not that way with God. We can climb right up into His lap because He is our Father. And Jesus is the one who gives us that access. We're part of the family, and... Because of that, we're beneficiaries of all of his blessings, these blessings that he has poured out on us, so that we can turn, in turn, give them out to the world, and so that through us, he may be praised. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, I think I mentioned this before. Now that I'm saying it out loud, I feel like I have talked to you about catechism. Does anyone do catechisms with their children or grown up in a church that did a catechism? Amber did the catechism. Yay. I didn't. I learned about catechisms like as an adult. I had no idea. But catechisms are questions and answers. They're designed to um, answer theological truths. So like one of them is, who is God? And then the answer, which will be memorized, I don't know what the answer is because I didn't do the catechisms. But anyway, in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, one of the questions is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And that is our life goal. That is our purpose, to bring glory to Him. And we are looking forward to that time when we can enjoy Him forever. We're enjoying Him now, and it's never going to stop from now into eternity because of what Christ has done for us. So I will pray, and then we'll see what you do from there. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for Jesus, for bringing us peace, for coming and getting us when we were so far away from you, Lord, for bringing us home, for drawing us into your family, Lord. We know we don't deserve it, God, but we are so grateful for it. Thank you for that grace that covers us, for your mercy and your love that you have poured out on us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live out these truths, to be bringers of your peace, bearers of the good news, to be ambassadors for your glory, Lord. That you would help us to be your people in a lost and a dying world. Lord, that you would help us to draw others into the family. God, we love you, and it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.